Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, hey, uh, it is exciting to be in church this morning, and if you are joining us for the first time, I know that we already said it before, but welcome again, and it's an honor to have you in our midst, and we do want to connect with you before you leave. Uh, You know, we mentioned this free gift, but we have like a whole swag bag out there in our Connect area. We'll give you like a hat, we'll give you a journal, we'll give you whatever you need, five bucks, we will take care of you before you leave today. So uh, please connect with us. Uh, We believe that you kind of get to be a visitor one time, but after that, we're that awkward uncle that immediately makes you family and starts hugging you and you know, maybe even kissing you on the cheek. It's all good. It'll be great, but we want you to become family here at the Father's House. Uh, we have been in a series for the last couple of weeks entitled Rooted, and uh, today I have the distinct honor of concluding that series. Uh, I think we've been in it for five weeks. Today will be the sixth week, and then we'll jump into a new series uh, in a couple of weeks, but uh, we've been talking about this concept of being firmly established in the things of God. That's why we chose the title Rooted. In a culture that uh, is sort of non-committal, a culture that likes to keep their options open, uh, it is very easy to begin to apply the same logic of our culture to the things of God. We can begin to think about Bible and prayer and church attendance and the things God's called us to do, like we think about diet and exercise and maybe the startup culture of San Francisco where I just kind of hang out one place long enough until someone else gives me a better offer and I kind of hop around and ever moving but never truly get rooted and planted in anything. And we know, according to the Word of God, that while uh, that might be the way of culture, if we want to see good fruit in our lives, fruit comes by being rooted. You cannot experience the fruitfulness that God intends for your life without being rooted in the things of God. And that's, by the way, God's desire for everybody here in the room. God wants you to be fruitful. He wants your job to be fruitful. He wants your family to be fruitful. He wants your finances to be fruitful. But that is the byproduct of being rooted in the things that he's called us to be rooted in. And so for the last few weeks, we've been discussing some concepts like uh, being rooted in the word of God, declaring out the word of God over our circumstance and over our lives and seeing his word produce fruit in our lives. Uh, We've been talking about being rooted in our identity, understanding who we are in Christ. And regardless of what people have said about us, regardless of what even I say about myself sometimes based on my past performance, I know that God has called me righteous. I am a man of God and I can stand in righteousness. Uh, We talked about being planted in the house of God as you are this morning. And those who are planted in the house of God will flourish here. Uh, And then last week, my wife did an absolutely incredible job uh, displaying the love of God, being rooted in the love of God. And listen, I'm not just saying that because, like, I have to go home with her after this. And, uh, like, honestly, that was one of the most profound messages I have ever heard on the love of God. And if you were out of town for Memorial Day weekend, um, I want to strongly encourage you, admonish you, please get on the website, tfh.church, get on the podcast and listen to that or watch it on the YouTube channel. It will help you for sure. And, and, And you'll be blessed because of that. Did I miss anything? Okay, that's what she told me to say. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but today we're going to conclude. She didn't tell me that. I'm just kidding. Okay, she's, she's a humble woman. Um, today we're going to conclude this series, and I want to talk to you about being rooted in hope. Somebody say hope today. How many could say that you could use a little bit more hope in your life? Maybe just, just, just a smidge, just a, just a tad more hope. How many single people are hoping and scoping for the person that God has called you to be with for the rest of your days? All right, yeah. Those are, those are options with people's hands. I do this for you all the time because I want you to be able to look around and see the faces like, I'll take that one. Okay. 
Uh, how many hoping for a new job or a breakthrough vocationally or an open door? How many hoping for breakthrough in your life or some new freedom or maybe healing for something? Uh, okay, a little participation, maybe this one. How many hoping that the Warriors take this series with the Raptors and today is a day of victory? Okay, just make sure we're on the same team. Yeah, we, we all have some things that we're hoping for and we could all use a fresh dope, dope, a fresh dose of hope in our lives. You couldn't use some fresh dope. Please don't do that. <laughs> Rewind. Out of the abundance of the heart. Just kidding. Okay. But here's the problem with human hope. Oftentimes, human hope has left you wanting. Human hope has let you down. There are some things in life that you have hoped for and they didn't come true. They didn't come to pass. And so your parents and those around you taught you from a very young age, don't get your hopes up. Keep your standards low. Don't wish for too much. Don't hope for too much because it's only a matter of time before life hits you and you understand that things probably aren't going to work out the way you hoped they would. We've all heard that before. But, but the Bible tells us about a different kind of hope that is available to the believer. Available to anybody in this room today that calls upon the name of Jesus. And the Greek word for hope is elpis. And here's what it means. To confidently expect something good. To expect something good for your family. To expect something good for your marriage. To expect something good for your sickness. To expect something good in whatever situation you find yourself in. It crosses over the threshold of wishful thinking and desire. And it says, I'm not going to just wish. I'm not going to just desire. But I actually have the audacity to expect that God is going to do something good in my life. Because according to the word, Psalms 119, he's a good God and he only does good. And so I expect something good for my life. And today, if you're here and you find yourself maybe hopeless in a, in a situation or hope seems to be waning because it's been a little bit of time since you've been waiting for this thing to happen and it hasn't happened yet, here's my desire. I want you to get a little bit of elpis in your heart before you leave today. A little bit of that confident expectation that God is going to do something good in your life, that there is something greater than what you're facing right now, and it's only a matter of time before hope is restored and you see the promises of God fulfilled in your life. And so if you're going to take notes this morning, I want to title this chat, and I work really hard on these titles. I'm really excited about this one, okay? So, so it's kind of nerdy. That's a water bottle. This is bugging me. Hold on. It's trash on the stage. Unbelievable. Okay. If you're taking notes, here's what we're going to call it. Anchor down, hopes up. Anchor down, hopes up. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into this. Jesus, we love you this morning. And uh, Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that every week as we gather in this place and we lift up our voices and we sing unto you, the promise of your word is that we create a habitation where you can come and you can meet with us. We sense your nearness here today, Jesus. We sense your presence here today. And Lord, I ask over these next few moments as we study your word, as we talk about hope, that people in the room today that are walking through a difficult season or people that might be transitioning into a difficult season and you sort of promise that, we're all going to face them. I pray that we would understand that even in the midst of that storm, even in the midst of that season, we can hope. We can have a confident expectation for something good. Restore hope to us today and help us leave this place with a fresh skip in our step. God, understanding that you're for us, not against us, and that victory is already spoken for in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Uh, one of the things that I thank God for every single week when I pray is the diversity of our church. 
Um, I love that we don't all look the same, talk the same, come from the same place, but that we are multi-generational, we are uh, very diverse in our ethnicities, uh, our different backgrounds and life experiences. Uh, when, I, when we came to plant the church here, I prayed often, I said, God, I, I want a church that looks like heaven. I don't want just one age group or you know, one kind of person. I want people that look different and talk different and come from all over the place. And I pray that that's the kind of church we would have. And when I look around the room this morning, I thank God for the diversity in our church. Um, but yeah, come on, we can give it up to Jesus for that. Despite our diversity, there is one thing that every single one of us in the room has in common. All of us have a friend that doesn't know the lyrics to the song. You know that friend that I'm talking about. Perhaps you are that friend, but that person, when the song comes on in the car or you're hanging out listening to some music together, um, they sort of like mumble through the parts that they don't know and then they confidently sing out the few lyrics that they do know or they're always singing the wrong lyrics that make no contextual sense to the song. And you're looking at them like, bro, that is not what the artist said. Come on, anyone have that friend? Anyone is that friend? Okay, here's the deal. Whether you realize it or not, you've all done this. We've all done this. I'm gonna throw myself in the same, under the same bus here. Uh, and I'm going to prove it to you today. I have created a small playlist for us this morning of songs that are often misquoted. Uh, and people either don't know the lyrics or they sing the wrong lyrics all the time. Uh, for starters, we're going to make our way into the greatest genre and season of music of all time, 90s R&B. And uh, I want to talk to you about an artist by the name of Seal. Now, before you play that, uh, that song, Drew, um, I listened to this song all the time growing up. It was in the Batman movie, and it's a little song called Kiss by a Rose. And uh, there is a line in Kiss by the Rose in the second, or, uh, uh, second verse where, to me, the way I sang this lyric my entire life, and you're going to hear it, is... To me, you're like a Roman dictionary, but you're not, okay? <laughs> to me, you're like a Roman dictionary, but you're not, okay? Let's see if that's what he says. Drew, play it for me real quick. Oh, give me a little more volume, Miguel. Come on. Come on, this is so good. Sing along if you know it. Let it get to the chorus, because you've all also sang the chorus wrong, whether you realize it or not. A little more volume, so that we can all sing it out. Oh, Kelly, here we go. Be seen. All, all of us together here. Baby. Okay, stop. What did he say there? Stop, 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 stop. stop. What did he say there? And uh, man, and I'm a kiss by a rose on the grave. <laughs> Guilty. I compare you to a kiss from a rose, ready, by the grave. It's not even the grave, okay? Like, I'm helping you out today. Okay, another song, circa 1994, uh, by a little band called TLC. This one's called Waterfalls. Can you hit it for me, please, real quick, Drew? Okay, stop, 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 stop. Now, all of us are like, I don't, I don't get it. That one's not funny. Like, I know that. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Well, if you were a teenage girl in 1994, like my wife, and apparently like a lot of other people, because this one is misquoted in the top 20 songs of all time, it wasn't chasing waterfalls. It was a gentleman by the name of Jason Waterfalls. <laughs> like, don't go, Jason. Don't go, <laughs> Jason Waterfalls. I'm just 
calling it as I see it, people. All right, let's bring it a little more current. Um, my kids, they love uh, Taylor Swift, and uh, uh, namely the last album. And there was a couple of hits on there that were really catchy and easy to sing. Please don't judge my parenting as you hear this song uh, in just a moment. Uh, but this was one of their favorite songs on the album. Go ahead, hit blank space, please. Right here. No, no, no. Keep playing it. Sorry. Okay, stop. So, inappropriate for church, I've got a long list of ex-lovers, and I'll write your name. We're listening to that song in the car, like great parents should, and my eight-year-old's singing it at the top of her lungs in the back seat, and I stop the song. I'm like, what did you just say? And she's like, oh, I've got a lonely Starbucks latte, and I'll write your name. And I'm like... That's exactly what she said. It's a lonely Starbucks latte. She's got this picture of a barista that doesn't know who the latte goes to. Like, I'll write your name on it, whatever you need. I'm like, that is 100% appropriate for an eight-year-old. Well done. Okay, if I didn't catch you on the last three, I'm getting everybody on this one because every single one of you misquoted this song. 1987, hit it for me, Drew. Okay, stop. <laughs> la, 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 bamba. That's how you've all done it, okay? First of all, it's not la, 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 bamba. It's para bailar la bamba. Se necesito un poco de gracia. So to dance the la bamba, you need a little bit of grace is what he's saying right there, okay? I'm here to help you so that when you're in the car, you don't make a fool of yourself next time, all right? Now you know the lyrics to the song. And I get it, Spanish is hard. It's fine, it's okay. Don't get me started on Despacito. That song is mad inappropriate and every one of you sings about a burrito in the chorus of that song and you know it. Despacito, eat a burrito. Like that's exactly what you do and you know you do it. Now, at church, we don't want you to get caught up and look like a fool as you've done in the car so many times with your friends. And so we put lyrics on a screen so that you can sing along and provided the lyric operator is on his game or her game, like you can sing along to the song and you don't feel left out. But I think there's actually been some moments in church before where maybe like La Bamba, you were singing a lyric you didn't quite understand. Something that didn't really make sense to you, but you sang it with all the passion and all your heart, and, and you lifted your hands, and you worshiped along, but you really didn't know what you were saying. In fact, just to put you on the spot, I think you might have done that today. Yes, I, I, I did plan this. <laughs> uh, if you could play that last song for us, let me show you a song that many of you maybe have sung, maybe sang today with the passion and with the volume, but perhaps you didn't know what you were singing. Go ahead, Drew. It's a safe place, to be honest. How many of you this morning maybe sang that song 
at the top of your lungs with the rest of us. And when Jonah went up the octave, my anger holds within me. You sang it, but you're not exactly 100% sure what that means. Come on, be honest this morning. Okay, yeah, many of us in the room, you can put your hand down. And that's okay. I'm going to help you today so that from now on, when you sing that song and you get to that lyric, your passion and your volume and your hands that go towards the ceiling are actually doing so with a little bit of understanding because that is an incredibly powerful truth that all of us need to be convinced of today. Uh, If you have a Bible, I want you to open up to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to dive into this concept of being anchored in hope. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. Here's what it says. When people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Come on, somebody say amen there. Therefore, we who have fled to God for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls, and it leads us through the veil into God's inner sanctuary. Now, there's a lot there to unpack but I'm gonna do my best over the next couple of moments to, uh, to, to kind of unpack this scripture so that we have some understanding and we know that we are anchored in the right place, that we are rooted in the right place. The author here in Hebrews, he starts off by telling us that God has made some immutable, some unchangeable, uh, unchangeable promises to us. Unlike humanity, in fact, I think Caitlin sang this out a moment ago when we, were, when we were worshiping together, unlike the promises that have been broken or people that have let you down, God's cha- uh, promises can be banked on. You can take them to the bank. If he said it, it's going to take place. I heard a preacher say one time, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I think that is a strong theology. If God stated it about my life, if he stated it about my future, I am banking my life upon that promise because he does not lie and he's good for it. And we love to to talk about God's promises. We preach about God's promises. We sing about God's promises. All your promises are yes and amen. We we, we put our our post-it notes with God's promises in our house. We got bumper stickers with God's promises. But here's a question I want to pose to everyone in in the room this morning. Are you actually walking in and living in God's promises for your life? Because while we talk about it, we sing about it, we post about it, I wonder how many of us are actually experiencing it. I, uh, years ago, I was preaching a message at uh, our old church in Vacaville, and I made mention of the fact during the sermon that um, I really like to read. And so for like the next month, people came up to me after church and they gave me random books that they like to read. And I'm like, thanks for building my library with stuff I will never read. I didn't mean that's what I wanted. But uh, one lady came up to me after the service one day, and she gave me this book called The Bible Promise Book. And I looked at it and I read the, the, the cover page and it said 1,000 promises from God's word. And I was intrigued. And so I opened up this book and I began to read through some of the promises that God had made to me. Promises about eternal life. Promises about his faithfulness. Promises about joy. Promises about my finances. And sure enough, there are 1,000 promises in this book that God has made to me through scripture. Through, to you through scripture. But if today I was to go hand this book out to you and I'd say, hey, take this home and read it, you might make it about halfway through before you got a little frustrated as I did because what I noticed while reading through this book was God has made a lot of promises to me, 
but I seem to notice a disparity between his promises and my experience. I, I, I can read it, and I can even say I believe it, but for some reason, I'm not experiencing the fullness of what God has promised me. And maybe you'd come back and you'd say, hey, Pastor Tim, I appreciate the book, but it actually discouraged me more than it helped me because I'm noticing that God has more for me than I'm walking in. Why is that? And I could give you a few reasons. Uh, maybe one of those reasons is, is timing. You know, often we want God to operate on our timetable and we want him to answer our prayer and the timeline that we have given him. But so often as it is in God, the timeline for us is a little different than the timeline he's got in mind. Uh, he promised Abraham that he would have a son, and that was a 25-year waiting process. He promised David that he would be king, and that was a 16-year waiting process. He promised the Israelites they were going to walk into uh, the Canaan land, the promised land that he had for them. That was about 400 years of slavery leading up to that promise. So often God's timeline is a little different, and it's not a little different, and it's not that he's not good for his promises, is that you're that, in that season between promise and fulfillment called waiting. And we have to do that season well. Uh, maybe another reason uh, we're not experiencing the fullness of God's promises is because we don't understand the context. There are many things written in this Bible that were written to specific people at a specific time in history, and they were not intended to be promises that we lay hold of. So we need to understand, is this something God was saying to a specific group of people, or is this something that God was saying to me? But, but I think that the predominant reason many of us are not living in the fullness of God's promises of our, for our life is because as you read through that book and as you read through your Bible, here's what you'll notice about God's promises. The vast majority of them are conditional. In other words, they require an action on our part before God is obligated to honor his part. If, if you want the literary way of saying it, it often uh, shows up like this in Scripture. If you do this, then I will do this. If you, human, then I, God, will do this. He's looking for us to take a step of faith first before he answers his promise. Let me give you an example. Um, I want a healthy, happy marriage. I want kids that love Jesus, that grow up to serve him in their older days. I want God to bless my finances and I want to have more than enough so that I can be generous on every occasion, pay my bills, enjoy life and have an inheritance I can pass down to my kids. I want freedom from anxiety. I want influence. I want the things that God has called me to do to, to come naturally. I want to experience walking in the fullness of his promise for my life and his plan for my life. Does anybody else want those things for their life? And God has promised that to us. He's promised that to me and he's promised that to you. However, all of those promises are conditional. They require action from me before I can experience his promise. Yes, God desires and has promised that he would give me a healthy, happy marriage. But my part is that I have to keep Jesus at the center of my life and at the center of my marriage, and before I care about anybody else's needs, I have to care about being in his presence so that he can transform my heart, he can make me patient, he can make me kind, he can make me serving, and then, then I can turn around and be the kind of husband that I need to be for my wife, and that will keep our marriage healthy and strong. God has promised that when my kids are older, they will not run away from him, but that is a conditional promise. And it's based on me raising up my children in the ways of the Lord. It says in Proverbs that if you raise a child up 
when they are in the ways of God, when they're older, they shall not depart from it. Let me, let me encourage a parent here today. Maybe you've got a teenage son or daughter or maybe a young adult son or daughter and they're far from Jesus and you're like, I did my best, I brought them to church and I'm not understanding why they don't wanna serve God right now. Listen, there's a promise you can cling to. Maybe they're in that season where they're running from Jesus, but if you raise them up in the house of God, there is a promised fulfillment that says when they are old, I don't care if that's when they're 80, they turn back to Jesus. You just care about seeing them in heaven one day. It's a promise he's made to you. Conditional promises. If you do this, I will do this. But, but let me hone in on one uh, that's going to make everybody in the room uncomfortable for a couple of moments, but it affects every single one of us here because not everyone's married and not everybody has kids, but all of us are dealing with this one. I want God to provide for all of my financial needs. I see God as my provider, not my job, not people. My source is not found in, on this planet. He is my provider. And he has promised me that he will provide for every need that I have, that I will not be without food, that I will not be without clothing, that he will provide shelter for me and my family, that I will have more than enough in my life so that I can be generous to other people, so that I, I don't have to worry about paying my bills and that's all, but I can actually be generous to those who don't have enough to pay their bills and I can be generous when I see somebody on the street that needs money or when I find out about a family that's going through a rough season, I can bless them financially. God has promised all of those things to me. But... That is a conditional promise. And that promise requires obedience on my part before God is obligated to fulfill his provision on his part. There's a lot of scriptures in the Bible that talk about this. In fact, Hebrews chapter seven, right after Hebrews six, which we're studying today, talks in detail about this. But I think the clearest example of this conditional promise is in Malachi chapter three. And many of you have been in church, you've heard this before, but look what it says. Should people cheat God? No, yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? When did we rob you? Well, you've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And then here's the promise. There's the condition. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Put me to the test. There is an irrevocable promise here, an unconditional promise, excuse me, not a conditional, an unconditional, a conditional promise, but an irrevocable promise. God says, if you do this, I promise I will do that. If you bring the whole tithe, let me make everybody in the room uncomfortable for a moment. The whole tithe. Tithe means 10%. My wife mentioned it a moment ago. And you bring it into the temple. Welcome to the temple. You're sitting in it right now. The local church. God said, if you bring a tenth of your increase to me and you invest it in the house of God, my promise to you is that I will open up the windows of heaven. I will provide for every single one of your needs. You will never lack. You will never not have enough. I'll provide so that you'll be blessed, not just to pay your own bills, but you'll have more than a left over to share with everybody else. That's his promise to us. But the condition is you have to give. You have to tithe. Okay, now, people get funny when you talk about money, okay? And, and I, I felt the air leave the room when I said that, okay? So I want you to hear my heart on this. Please, just lean in for a second. I want you to live in the blessing of God. I want you to experience the faithfulness of God in your finances. 
Not because I care about paying bills for a church, because I want you to walk in the fruit of being rooted in this promise. But it's not enough for me to want it for you. It's not even enough that every day I pray it over you as a church. It requires an action on your part before God is obligated to fulfill his end of the bargain. There's this group of people that are being addressed here in Malachi, and they're clinging to a promise they will never inherit. Like God's going God's to provide for my needs, and God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can name that, claim that, blab that, grab that all you want, but you haven't done your part. And if you haven't done your part, then I am not obligated to do my part. It takes a step of faith on your part first. And listen, I have banked my life on this promise. Any of you who know me and have spent any time around Robin and I, this is our jam. This is our song. This is what we have built our life upon. That when we give and we are generous, that God will provide for every single one of our needs. I, for the last 22 years of my life, I have not failed to bring the tithe to the house of God. When I was 14 years old and I worked at Domino's Pizza and I made $4.50 on my rollerblades hanging door hangers on people's doors for free pizzas, when I got my paycheck, what did I do? I gave a tenth of it to the house of God. And now 22 years later, I am still faithful every time we receive income to give back to the house of God. And in 22 years, I have never lacked. I have never needed. God has provided for every one of our, our financial needs. We've always had a roof over our heads. We've always had enough food to eat. He has been faithful to his promises to me. And when we came out to San Francisco, you better believe that I reminded God of this promise. Hey, remember what you said? I'm looking to heaven. Where's the window that's open? Like, like, if you've heard me say this before, if you've come to our Discover class, and I might have mentioned it on the weekend before, but when you move to the most expensive city here uh, on, on, in the country, you really only have one thing to bank on, and that is the promises of God for his faithfulness. Especially, Robin and I, we do not collect a salary for this thing. I'm not here to get paid. We haven't seen a single dime from planting this church. And so when we came here, and, and knowing that we were going to move to the most expensive city, unemployed, there's some faith in that for sure. And you're like, God, you, you promised. But for a year and a half, pardon me while I belabor this, for a year and a half while we've lived here, we've paid our rent on time. We've always had food in our stomachs. Our kids' needs have been provided for. Why? Because God is faithful to come through on his promises if we obey his word. We have never had need. Why? Because he's faithful. And I want the same for you. But it requires obedience on our part. We have to be those that bring the whole tithe. Don't tip God 50 bucks here and there or 20 bucks there. and Just trust him. And he will come through every single time. Do you know that as a church, we have been financially solvent since day one? which is unheard of for a church plant. We have never had to dip into savings. Why? Because as a church, we practice this principle. We give God the first and the best. We give 12% of our income away to other churches and other missions. Why? Because we want God to be our provider. We want God to be obligated for this church. He's on the hook for our success when we follow through with what he's promised us. If you, then I. If you, then I. Now, back to Hebrews. Stop talking about money. You can breathe deep now. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says when we do this, when, when, when we 
when we follow through with our part of the bargain and we bank on God's promises, something in, is produced in us that cannot be produced anywhere else in life. It's that Elpis word. He says, when you bank your life on God's promises and you realize that God does not lie, something happens. You have hope. This confident expectation of something good. It's that swagger I just mentioned a moment ago where I said, God, you were on the hook for this. You promised it. If I know that God does not lie, and if I know that God told me to do this, and as long as I do this, he will do that, then I can look up to God and not disrespectfully, but with faith say, hey, I've done my part to the best of my ability, and you promised that you would heal. You promised that you would save. You promised that you would provide. You promised that you would open up a door. I can confidently hope for something good because his promises are true. I have a confident expectation of good for my family because I've done what God asked. For my finances, because I've done what God asked. For my kids, because I'm doing my best to raise them the way they're supposed to be raised. And minus the Taylor Swift thing, I do everything I'm supposed to do with my kids, right? Like, I'm doing my best, and God is obligated on his end to do what he promised. I confidently expect something good for the future of our church because our church honors God. I confidently expect something good for your life because according to Psalms, if you plant yourself in the house of God as you are this morning, your life will flourish. I have a confident expectation of good for our city because the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they will pray, I will hear from heaven and I will come and I will heal their city, I will heal their land. Tuesday, we walked around this district with a couple of people. We prayer walked all over the Sunset District. And I know that every single one of those prayers were not only heard by God, but in heaven, those promises are already yes and amen. Every prayer we prayed is already being done in the heavenlies because God has promised to fulfill his end of the bargain. A confident expectation of something good. I can hope, I can expect something good when I live according to his word. But, but then it goes on. And here's the title of the whole thing. According to Hebrews 6, when I, when I have hope based on God's promises, something else happens. I don't just confidently expect something good for tomorrow, but hope acts as my anchor when things aren't good today. Let me, let me appeal to every person in the room that might be walking through a difficult season right now. There is an anchor for you to keep you from being blown and tossed and thrown to and fro in your situation. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter six, again in verse 19, it says, this hope, the hope that comes from clinging to God's promises is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Now, an anchor really only serves one purpose. The whole purpose of an anchor is to keep a vessel from moving when the things that are happening on the surface are doing everything in their power to make sure it moves. If there is a storm, if the current is too strong, if the winds are blowing, an anchor, provided it is grounded in something stable, will keep that vessel from following the current, from being blown over, or from being affected by the storm. Let me remind you today that in the same breath where Jesus promised his provision, and he promised hope, and he promised all the good stuff for us, he also promised that you're going to walk through some storms. 
He also promised that there's some difficulties we will face in this life. And the only time you really need an anchor isn't when the waters are good. It's when the waters are bad. And so Hebrews says, hey, before your boat gets blown over, before you find yourself succumbing to the outside influence of the wind and the waves, you need to anchor yourself to hope. You need to connect yourself to something greater so that when the wind does blow, something keeps you where you're supposed to be. Something keeps you from walking away from Jesus when things get tough and blaming him for the situation you find yourself in. Something keeps you from finding yourself outside the house of God because somebody hurt you in the house of God and we're gonna blame the house of God and before you know it, we run far away. But no, I'm attached to something that keeps me stable, that keeps me solid, that keeps me from moving. When culture tries to blow me away from the things of God, you really believe all that stuff and there's no way God's, I'm anchored to something that keeps me stable, that keeps me immovable, that keeps me unshakable, that regardless of what happens on the surface, there's some solidarity in my life because I'm anchored to something stronger. Let me ask you today, are you anchored? Are, are your anchors down and your hopes up? Because you're, you're truly saying, Jesus, you are my source. Your promises for me, regardless of what I'm facing, they are the anchor that keeps my mind from drifting into places where I doubt whether or not you promised to me is, tr is true. I have an anchor in my life. I have an anchor in sickness. I have an anchor in unemployment. I have an anchor when relationships blow up and people walk away from me and things don't go the way I thought they should. I have an anchor called the promises of God. Do you have that today? And if not, it's time for you to get your anchor down into God and stop finding your source somewhere else. Because the second you anchor down into him, guess what happens? Hope arises you begin to expect something good again. When your anchor is down, your hopes are up. But there's another beautiful picture that the author paints here for us again in Hebrews chapter six, and I'm gonna invite the band because I'm gonna land with this. He begins to talk about this veil and how this anchor is behind a veil. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. When you're anchored, you are in the very presence of Jesus. You are in the very presence of Jesus. What does he say? Hebrews 6, 19 again. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now, by nature of that statement, it seems a bit contradictory. <laughs> like the whole purpose of an anchor is to keep us somewhere, not to lead us somewhere, right? Like an anchor is supposed to be something solid. It's supposed to not move. So why does this anchor lead us to the other side of a curtain, to the other side of a veil? Is the author, you know, what's he trying to say? Is this poetic language? No, there's, there's something very specific that the author's pointing to here. In the Old Testament, there was something called the Holy of Holies. And it was a place that was believed to be the only place on earth where you could experience the very presence of God, the nearness of God. When you stood in the Holy of Holies, you were right there next to God himself. But there was a problem. Only one person, one time a year, had access to the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. 
And the way the Holy, Holies, Holy of Holies was set up was inside the temple, there was this, this veil and this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple where the commoners hung out. And behind the veil, behind the curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. Uh, it contained Aaron's staff that budded, and it contained, man it contained manna from the Israelites' time in the desert. And the high priest would walk in there one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would make sacrifices on behalf of the people so that they could be made right with God. He would offer sacrifices right there on the mercy seat between the cherubim, and it was a powerful time in the presence of God. But one person had access, and that's it. Well, Jesus changed all of that when he came to the planet and he gave his life. And according to the word, when he said, it is finished on the cross, the veil in the temple, the curtain separating the presence of God from all common people was torn from top to bottom, signifying that no longer was it one person that had access to the presence of God, but every single person in this room, every person on this planet, any person in time and history, could waltz right into the presence of God, come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy. Not timidly like the priest did, like I could die if I end up in God's presence, but we can walk right into God's presence and say, I'm a mess and I know it, but I'm here and I need you. Like we have access now. And the author tells us here that this anchor of God's promises takes us into the presence. It takes us behind the veil. It leads us to this place where we're no longer in the earth and in our own atmosphere any longer. We're, we're in a different place. We're in his presence. And let me tell you why you need to be in the presence of Jesus. Let me tell you why you need to be anchored to his promises and you need to spend as much time in the presence of God as possible. Everything you want is in God's presence. Healing is found in God's presence. Freedom is found in God's presence. Provision is found in God's presence. Wholeness is found in God's presence. Joy is found in God's presence. All of these things that we want in this life are found in the very presence of Jesus. But let me tell you the greatest thing that is found in God's presence that I think the author is pointing to in this scripture. Perspective. When you are in the presence of Jesus, you begin to see what you're facing on this planet for what it truly is. As Paul puts it, a temporary situation, a momentary suffering. You begin to realize my hope is not just in an outcome in this situation. My true hope is in the fact that I am just passing through on this planet Earth is not my home, and there will be a day where I stand in the presence of Jesus, and none of the things that moved me on earth are gonna move me there. None of the things I faced on earth are going to face me there. I will be healed, I will be whole, I will be provided for, and I will be in the very presence of Jesus. Our true hope is in heaven. And that perspective is only found in one place, when we're anchored to the presence of Jesus. I pray you get a fresh perspective over your situation today. I pray you get some hope for whatever you're facing. I pray that you would cling to God's promises in a fresh way today like you never have before. But at the end of the day, here's what my biggest prayer for you. That no matter how bad it looks, you'd be able to close your eyes for a moment and go, this ain't it. This ain't it. Even if this thing takes me out, I'll be in the presence of Jesus. And that's where I want to be. Amen. 
Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.